0: Hello and welcome to The Plastic Purge. This is your host, Dr. Chris Newman, and throughout the month of January 2019, I'm documenting a change, a transformation, I hope, from clueless consumer to plastic-free pariah. This episode is called Plastic. Where does it come from? And your fact for the day is all about disposable coffee cups. How many of them do you think actually get recycled? 50%? 10%? 5%? The answer is 0.25%. That is one cup in every 400 that is recycled. The reason is because they aren't just made of paper. They're made of paper lined with polyethylene, also known as PET, which is the same plastic they use to make plastic bottles with. It's incredibly hard to separate the two layers. So recycling plants just simply can't deal with it. Some of the manufacturers say, well, they are technically recyclable and they write recyclable all over the cups. But recyclable is not the same as recycled. Imagine this. You live in Paris and a tourist comes to you and says, is Moscow walkable from here? You could answer absolutely, of course you can walk there, but it's 2,765 kilometers away. So yes, it is walkable, but you'd be bonkers to actually try it. Same thing with these coffee cups. Technically, you could recycle them, but it's so time consuming that barely anyone actually does. What actually happens when you throw your paper coffee cup into the recycling? They take it out on the conveyor belt and throw it in a great big rubbish dump. Surely it would be better just to use a normal cup. But hey, that's what the plastic purge is all about. So I've been living plastic free for about a week now. And lots of people have been asking me why. I probably would have explained it earlier on this podcast, but I got carried away with writing episodes about Christmas time, giving plastic free presents and rewriting Christmas songs, which if you haven't heard... See episodes two and three for more backstory if you missed them. So the plastic purge is this. In the month of January 2019, I will not be buying any items containing plastic or wrapped in plastic. I won't be accepting plastic bags, plastic bottles, won't be getting takeaways, won't be eating convenience food, won't be buying clothes online or buying food wrapped in plastic. Absolutely none of that. And in the long term, to be honest, I can probably see myself carrying on along this path because the more... I read, the worse the situation seems to appear. But I wanna be fully honest with you, I absolutely love a challenge and that's the best way to get me to do anything and no plastic January seemed absolutely perfect. But the question is why, why bother? And more to the point, what even is plastic? I mean, seriously. I asked a few people on my train ride home from work on Friday and got some very mixed answers. The question is, how do we make plastic? How do we make plastic? Um, from oil, I think. I think plastic is from uh, was made from. Uh, you see them deposit bins. Yeah. Yeah, that's where they made it from. Okay. And then from those like um, rubbish and stuff that they picked up, they just made it. They build it up. Oil? No. But what do you mean? <laughs> like yeah. it is from the oil. plastics made from <coughs> oil. Yeah. Made from a tree from trees yeah okay yeah. yeah i guess plastic comes from factories like it gets made out of um products that can't be decomposed easily but just i would say like chemicals and like it's some kind of chemical process do you know like the the raw material it comes from Like the. no no. Um, so, I think most of it comes to the polycarbons that we derive from the same mechanisms as oil, things like that. So, again, natural substances yeah. as a base down, and then kind of worked up in the manufacturing industry. So, yes, the majority has it. Plastic comes from oil, but it has to be heavily processed first. Now, if you're hot on organic chemistry, like one of the guys that I interviewed, you can probably skip the next couple of minutes or so but make sure you tune back in around about seven and a half minutes because you'll appreciate that bit. So on with the science. Oil is a fossil fuel similar to coal and natural gas, and it's formed from fossils which come from animals and plants which were living tens and hundreds of millions of years ago. Over that time, they've been compressed under intense pressure and formed a liquid, oil, which runs deep underground until it hits some rock which is impermeable and impenetrable, where it stops and forms these big reservoirs called oil fields. Now, some of these are massive. The biggest by far is in Saudi Arabia, but Venezuela and Canada also have very large amounts of oil. So, once the oil fields are found, they dig huge holes into the ground to get it out. And you'd recognize the pumps, you see them a lot in old Western films. They were known as nodding donkeys because their heads bob up and down, a bit like those dogs you see on people's windscreens. Once the oil has been removed, it's either transported in big oil tankers or very big pipes, like the Eastern Siberia pipe, which connects Russia and China, which is nearly 5,000 kilometres long. That's as far as it is from Los Angeles on the east coast of America to New York City all the way on the west, or almost twice as far as the distance our imaginary tourist would have to travel from Paris to Moscow. As my nephew said when he first saw an organ in a church, That's a lot of pipes. Okay, so this is where it gets a little bit complicated. I'm going to attempt to explain two years of college chemistry in about a minute. So if you get lost, don't worry. The main takeaway is it's complicated. So all this oil needs to get into refineries because oil contains thousands of different components, which all have different uses. And how this works is you heat up the oil and it separates out the heaviest parts sink and the lightest parts swim. A little bit like treacle would sink to the bottom of a glass of water whereas oil would float on the top. The lightest possible product is the one way at the top and that's a gas. Something you'll have heard of. Something cows produce a lot of. Methane. The next lightest one is called ethane. Also a gas. And when you heat that up and apply a lot of pressure that turns into something called polyethylene, Also known as polythene like in polythene bags you get the picture but this is as complex as I'm going to go you know there are so many different types of plastic it's almost impossible to say how many it's like asking me how many types of bread are there there are just so many variations to give you a brief idea I wrote a song a cover of Tom Lerner's brilliant element song there's methacrylate, butadiene styrene, teropolymer and aramids and bacon-like polyester elastomer and propylene or bornein butin polypropylene and polycarbonate nitrile and polyoxymethylene. There's polyfluorotetral ethylene alan- and isoprene, chlorinated polyadhylene idicon and 8 9 tandrin and 8 one polythene. <sighs> and All of this a turtle eats while swimming in the Philippines. Bounded PVC, and polyolefin discovered as a waste product of manufactured gasoline and polybenzimidazole. And once you find that, it's And only 10% of these are actually recyclable. Sometimes I wish I were a fish so I could empathize. But I fear, my dear, it would be merely subaquatic suicide. So why am I telling you this? There are two reasons. The first is that for every plastic item we throw away, it's just replaced with another, just like it. And the production of new ones costs energy, pollution. The second reason is that there are lots of different types of plastic. That's why they're so hard to recycle because each type can only be recycled with ones of exactly the same type. And sometimes they're mixed together which is why we can't rely on recycling to fix this problem. We have to reuse the ones that we already have. I mean, they'll last for hundreds of years, right? And we'll also have to refuse new ones. And that's what I'm doing right now, this week. A lot of refusing. You can't recycle that stuff, Because you know? th- they, they, they weld the plastic onto the paper, so, and you can't take it off again. Have you got any plates, like plates, plates or bowls or anything? Uh, it's all right. Don't uh, worry about it. I can't give up now, mate. It's only like the 5th of July. It's the 5th of January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. But how much change can one slightly greying 37-year-old man actually make? Well, on my own, not much. But if I influence 100 people and they influence 100 people each and they influence another 100 people, that's 1 million and so on. And if you hit the problem hard enough and publicly enough, an individual can have an absolutely huge effect. I mean, ask B. Johnson. That's B short for Beatrice, not B short for Boris. She has a 120,000 strong Facebook group and a book dedicated to this problem. And she's credited with being a huge catalyst for the environmental movement. But even she had to start somewhere. And this is my somewhere. So I put out a message on Facebook and YouTube to see what kind of reaction I got. I asked people to join me in a plastic-free January. I wasn't hopeful. My previous attempts at doing something good on Facebook ended in absolute, utter failure. I tried to arrange a fancy dress half marathon around the inner ring road of London, which to be honest, in hindsight, sounds a little bit weird. Uh, But I did it for a friend's charity. I put out some messages on Facebook, but I put most of my energy into making a samurai outfit for the occasion because that was the icon of my friend's charity. I crafted a red papier mache helmet with huge white horns. I made a red layered cardboard body armour with painted yellow trim. And I think if I'd have put as much effort in social media as I had into making that outfit, I probably would have gotten more than three people to join me. But (laughs) better than nothing, I thought. And that thought obviously tempted fate because two of those people pulled out, citing lack of training, and the last one, she pulled out with an ankle injury, which left just me to run a half marathon on my own. Thankfully, a good friend from university, Al, stepped in and joined me. So I ran around London in flimsy cardboard armour while he cycled around next to me on a Boris bike wearing my big red horned helmet, having to stop every few metres because the helmet kept twisting and obstructing one of his eyes, which is not the best if you're trying to avoid cars. You may be wondering why I'm telling you this story in the middle of a podcast about reducing your plastic and caring about the future of the planet. Well, it's very relevant because I learnt a very important lesson. If you can show that you really care about something passionately, people will sit up and people will listen. This run around London from an outsider's perspective just looked like a guy playing around. And to be honest, it was partially right because there's something, I don't know what it is, that stops me, stops many people saying, I care about this. This is important. For some reason, we're really scared to put our heart and our soul and our brain and all of ourselves behind a cause because maybe we're worried we're wrong. Maybe we're worried that the charity isn't a good charity or there could be a better one or it's not run very well or there's something about it that will be found out in the future. And that means that we'll be found out. We'll be found to be lacking somehow. But this plastic thing, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. There's no, there's no maybe we're wrong. Like, just look. Look at the pictures. Look at the evidence. Look what... It's, it's horrific. It's It's heartbreaking. So this side of me that's scared of being vulnerable about a cause doesn't have to be there anymore because plastic is, we've just got to sort it. So with that in mind, I would have been happy to receive just a couple of messages, but I was surprised to receive much more. I'd love to friend? join the group. I am terrified, but I'm, I'm curious for sure. Yes. Uh, it. Oh, I love this I'll love the video. That sounds pretty, buddy. Come in for Sunday. I got 26 in total, and that message about Sunday. I offered to cook for anyone who would joined me, like a kind of nudge, just to make sure that I didn't end up with only me in the no plastic gang. It was going to be a plastic-free feast, except there was one problem. I have probably lived off a rotation of the same three meals for the past two years, so I am a terrible cook. But if B Johnson can get 120,000 to join her planet-saving mission, surely I can cook lunch for 20 people. I'm terribly nervous, to be honest. I'm really worried everyone will hate the food, that I'll burn stuff that will be disgusting. It's one of those things that I guess I'd have thought that by my age I'd be able to do. It's just that I never really got round to, to learning to, to cook well. So I'll have to bite my lip and swallow my shame or swallow the potential shame and just know that I'm doing the right thing. So that's it for this week. Will the meal be a delight or a disaster? With the twin challenges of firstly, figuring out what on earth to cook. And secondly, how do I get all that food without getting anything in plastic? Thanks to my friend Al for letting me record his conversation and all those lovely people at Manor House Tube Station and, of course, the very nice chap who was serving me in the market. This podcast has been produced in association with One Fine Play, a burgeoning new podcast production studio in London. I've been your host, Dr Chris Newman, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. If you liked your amateur science session this week, feel free to subscribe and find out what happens in the rest of January. If you are one of the people who does use a lot of disposable cups, maybe you could consider something else. Hope to see you in the next episode.